the biggest technical challenge remains understanding what's actually going on in the gut with these microbes because seeing that kind of interaction between like you know what a compound does what the microbes do and the end product that's an expensive process and it's difficult to do a whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket and what's best you can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill to a farm traveling or running errands it's never been this good and it's never been this simple we want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible eastman works with you to accelerate your nutrition program innovation Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Eastman serves veterinarians and nutritionists in agrochemical and animal health industries by helping them select, evaluate, and implement innovative nutritional programs. Eastman works with your team to customize your gut health approach in feed and water. Eastman's approach addresses nutritional and bacterial challenges and finds new ingredient preservation and hygiene solutions. Explore ways to accelerate and innovate your programs. Contact the animal nutrition team at eastman.com. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast from North Carolina State University's Feed Science Program. I'm Dr. Adam Farenholz, and on behalf of Wisenetics, I'd like to thank my guest today for joining us, Dr. Todd Calloway from the University of Georgia. Dr. Calloway, how are you doing today? Doing well. Excellent. It's kind of nice getting ready for Christmas at this point. Absolutely. Yeah, last uh, last few things before the holidays here. Um so, Dr. Calloway uh, primarily works in the area of uh, rumen nutrition and microbiology. Uh, so, we're going to tr- have some discussions today about how the interactions uh, happen between the, the choices of feed ingredients, additives, and everything else that, that might go into the, what, the decisions we make on feeding and how that actually impacts the animal and, and kind of what that has historically looked like and, you know, what it look, might look like going forward. Uh, before we jump all into that, Todd, if you wouldn't mind, uh, give the audience a bit of uh, your background and kind of a synopsis of, of what you and uh, your lab there uh, work on today. Okay, I guess <clears throat> overall my background is I grew up on the ruins of a dairy farm that went out of business in the early 70s, and we wound up raising effectively dairy-owned beef before that was cool, uh, <laughs> and then some, you know, drifted more into Angus. And my mom got us into horses. So throughout the 70s and 80s, we raised horses and a few cattle here and there. And, you know, because of that background, I grew up, I wanted to go be a veterinarian, like pretty much everybody in our field at some point. And then you get better when you kind of recover from that (laughs) and, you know, then decide you want to do graduate school. So I did my bachelor's degree here at the University of Georgia and then I started working in the lab with a rumen nutritionist and rumen microbiologist, and I kind of got hooked on that interaction, how this microbial population in the gut, how it converts the feed 
and there's a symbiotic relationship between the animal and this microbial population and how that microbial population is determined based upon what you feed the animal. So how that interaction works together was really cool to me. And then over time, I got to see how, you know, you change the diet, it changed that population, how that affected what your production was, whether you were growing beef cattle, dairy cattle, pigs, or poultry, that that microbial population had different levels of impact. But no matter what, it still has an impact on that host animal. And that's really exciting to see. So that was really great to me. And I got the chance to go work on my PhD at Cornell with uh, Jim Russell, who is kind of a famous person in room and micro world. Well, famous and infamous. I mean, it was <laughs> a, uh, he was a difficult personality. It's just the best way to put it. Brilliant mind, but difficult personality. And, I worked there. We kind of worked with how antimicrobials like menensin was my main project of how organisms could become resistant to menensin, how that affected how we were feeding. And over the course of that, I kind of learned a lot about menensin to the point now where I get random phone calls from uh, companies that make menensin asking, hey, what what do you think about this? Mm -hmm. Is this working? So it's kind of been fun in that regard. After that, I went and worked with USDA, the Ag Research Service down in College Station, Texas, and we did gut microbiology. But We were specifically looking at how can we reduce foodborne pathogenic bacteria in the live animal before they go into slaughter. And primarily, we were looking at how can we adjust diets, how can we add different feed additives to reduce salmonella, E. coli, O157, Capylobacter from cattle, pigs, swine, or obviously swine and pigs, same thing, and poultry. So how can we work in all these species? What tools do we have? So we spent a lot of time looking at different diets, you know, the effects of distillers grains, the effect of uh, grind size, whether we could add sodium chlorate and a whole bunch of those different projects and eventually I became national program leader of food safety and discovered that my strengths really lie in being in the laboratory. I was doing things and had some great scientists working for me, but the joy of doing the science just wasn't there for me. Mm -hmm. So I managed to come back to my alma mater and come back as an assistant professor about seven years ago now. And have been here ever since. Excellent. Gotcha. So uh, we'll just kind of jump right into it. And, and since you threw out there the, uh, the, the that you get asked Meninson questions all the time, I think one question that I've always kind of had is as someone who, you know, made a lot of different research feeds, a lot of different research diets, you know, from grad school up to what I'm doing now. And we've seen a lot of different, um, medications, antimicrobials, I won't say come and go. Most of what's always been on the market is still on the market. But, you know, for swine and poultry, some people like to use this and some people like to use that. And then on the cattle side, we have menensin as this like ubiquitous, everybody uses it. Is it. What is it about it that it's like, this is why, this is, this is what it is about it that everybody across the board uses this product? Well, because it works. Mm -hmm. I mean, is the simple answer. Um, it is 
I mean, the story of how we discovered you feed it to cattle is a really weird one because, you know, we use it in the poultry industry as a coccidia stat. Right. And people were at the time discovering, hey, we can take our chicken litter and feed it to cattle. And they discovered if you're feeding it, if you're feeding chicken litter from chickens that had been treated with menensin, those cattle grew better than those that weren't treated fed feces or litter from those that weren't treated with menensin. Mm-hmm. Somebody said, well, how about we cut out the middleman, throw the <laughs> menensin in. Holy crap, these animals grow better. So it menensin, and I love this molecule. I can talk you to death on it, so I'm going to try to keep it relatively short. But it is a fat-soluble molecule. So it will go into, when you throw it in the rumen, in the, through the ration, it's going to go into the membranes of bacteria because they're made of fat. So it's this nice fat-soluble molecule. And what it does is it shuttles back and forth across the membrane of the bacteria thousands of times a second, exchanging protons for metal ions. So what it does is depolarize the cell. So the normal way bacteria use, uh, they maintain these ion gradients the same way your heart does or any kind of neuron would. Well, you depolarize that, the cell can't make its living and it dies. So you kill bacteria with it. But bacteria fall into two basic physiological groups. Gram negatives that have two membranes around them, and it's like a water balloon within a water balloon. So the ionophore, like menensin, will go into that outer membrane, but doesn't reach that inner membrane. Mm-hmm. You then also have gram-positive bacteria that's just one water balloon. And the menensin can insert into that membrane. There's no protection to keep it out. And it shuttles across and depolarizes those gram-positive bacteria. So when you throw it in the room and you're inhibiting a lot of your gram-positive bacteria, and we'll come back to their difference in a minute, but you're inhibiting these gram-positives. And they produce a lot of hydrogen gas. They're doing a lot of fermenting. And they're taking NAD or NAD to NADH. And normally in the room, and you've got a large population of methanogens who are pulling off that hydrogen gas to make methane. Well, if you're inhibiting those gram positives, then the methanogens don't get any feed. They don't get any food for them. So you reduce methane production. That gram positive population also includes a lot of lactic acid bacteria like streptococcus, uh-huh. lactobacillus, lactococcus. They grow really quickly and they take starch and sugar to lactic acid, which is a strong acid, and you can wind up with acidosis. So you knock a lot of those guys out of the rumen. So you don't get as much lactate production either. And then you also inhibit a group of bacteria called obligate amino acid fermenters. And they're a group of bacteria, and three of them have some of the best names, uh, Clostridium sticklandii, Clostridium aminophyllum, and Peptostreptococcus anaerobius. And they're just kind of fun to say if you're a real nerd over the course of things. But they're true gram positives. They are inhibited by menensin. So you're degradation of protein of your feed protein which you know as we know is our most expensive single ingredient going in there our component not ingredient going into that ration 
if we're not breaking it down to just ammonia that the animal then has to spend energy to eliminate, if we're able to keep those amino acids whole and incorporate them into more microbial cell mass or let the animal take them up themselves, you're more efficient with your protein use instead of wasting it. Because those obligate amino acid fermenters break amino acids to ammonia. They use the carbon skeletons and dump that ammonia out. So you reduce those organisms. So overall, you're shifting away from methanogenesis, reducing lactate, and getting rid of this wasteful ammonia production. Well, when you're getting rid of lactate production, it shifts in methane production. Those reducing equivalents have to go somewhere. And the next best dumping place for the microbial population is on propionate. And propionate, you know, you're making this whole fermentation of volatile fatty acids, acetate, propionate, and butyrate being your three primaries. Well, propionate is glucogenic, meaning when the animal absorbs it, it goes straight to glucose. Well, in the beef cattle side, it's fantastic because that propionate leads to intramuscular marbling rather than back fat or milk fat. Mm-hmm. So when we're feeding this high-grain ration, we've got menensin in there. We're shifting that acetate to propionate ratio. Ruminal pH is higher. You don't waste as much ammonia and or as much protein as ammonia, and you don't have as much loss of methane. And you know, before methane was cool, like it is now in the sustainability argument, right? it was described really easily as it's a 12% loss of your carbon and energy that you're adding you know, you're feeding it and 12% of your carbon energy goes away. As a producer, I'm not a fan of that. So reducing or adding menensin reduces it 30 to 50% of your methane, 30 to 50% of your um, ammonia production shifts that acetate propionate ratio. So you improve feed efficiency in your cattle. So by feeding this to them, you're shifting that microbial population over towards more gram-negative, for want of a better term, and I'll come back to that in a minute, population. So it's making it a little more efficient for the cattle. Now, it's not as clear-cut. You know, we say it's gram-positive or gram-negatives. And when I learned microbiology, it was a viewed as it was like a light switch. You're either gram-positive or gram-negative. Reality is it's more of a spectrum. There's some bacteria that have discontinuous outer membranes, and some of the gram positives can produce a glycocalyx or a snot layer around them that helps exclude things like menensin from reaching that membrane so that it doesn't enter the cell and destroy the elect- that proton gradient. So your gram positives can become more resistant or less sensitive, not resistance in this antimicrobial sense. But no matter what, you're still shifting that microbial population to be more efficient. So because it works and it's so repeatable that we currently, you're talking roughly 90% of the beef cattle and that aren't in any kind of special no antibiotics ever program mm-hmm. are fed ionophores because I mean it works fantastically. Yeah. And all all figured out by accident, really. 
Yeah, it was a, it was one of those true, just pure accidents that happened. And when you look at the history of microbiology, the most of them are. I don't know if it, yeah, most things are accidents. And I mean, I don't know if that's because there are a bunch of mad scientists in the field or just stupid people like me wandering around doing these things. But most of the big things like discovery of Campylobacter, discovery of penicillin, they were lab accidents that, huh, hey, here's something. Yeah. So, you know, mistakes aren't always bad. Sure. Absolutely. So you, you mentioned like if, you know, it being so ubiquitous, except for in situations where for whatever reason, and in most cases, the ionophores are, 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 are nice tools to have in that, um, you know, in, in that drug spectrum, because they're, they're not going to fall under some of the classes of antibiotics and things like that when we get into some of these programs, but there are still going to be folks that are, going to, for whatever reason, want to feed without any kind of medicated feed additive. What are the options if either I'm, let's say I'm either maybe in a program like that, or, you know, I I want to do something similar to what I'm going to get out of Menensin, but I'm, I'm a, I'm a commercial feed mill and I'm, I've got to make my horse feed too. So I'm not bringing Menensin anywhere near my facility. Sure. What else is there out there additive wise, ingredient wise, maybe even on the processing side, how we, how we handle the, the grains grinding size, whatever the case may be that will do some of that shifting for us too. Okay. Well, grind size plays a big role. If you get it so small and so fine on your grind, especially if you're dealing with corn or wheat or barley, you're going to get such a rapid ruminal fermentation that you'll get a lot of lactic acid buildup. You'll get acidosis and, you know, you get small enough, you can kill your cows. We actually had, was doing an experiment this fall and we ordered some uh, cattle feed from a local feed mill and they had their rollers set to grind corn for poultry feed because this is Georgia we do a lot of poultry feed so they ground our cattle ration like you do poultry meal and I mean it was dust I'm like yeah I'm not feeding this to my cattle it's going (laughs) to kill them it will stop their clock in no time so that's ways you can play with it but there's you know so much you can do we've kind of got that sorted um, we went through a lot of the issues with uh, adding distillers grains for a while. About 15 years ago, we got up to, we were trying to feed up to about 40% of the rash of the ration as distillers grains. Mm-hmm. We discovered that didn't work real well with the cattle. There were a lot of problems, but one of the big things we noted was that high of a level increased the shedding in the cattle of E. coli 0157. That's a big foodborne pathogen. So that and other economic reasons, it's kind of back down and kind of steady in that 20, 25% range for most distillers grains. Okay. Um, you know, so you can play with that. But really the biggest tools to manipulate that microbial population we have are things like phytochemicals um, and probiotics or now the term that we want to use is eubiotics which encompasses all of what we call direct fed microbials mm-hmm. and it's got a whole family tree of organisms that underneath it that includes uh, probiotics prebiotics and postbiotics and then you've got phytochemicals that you can also use like essential oils we use some orange peel 
Um, you know, there's a whole host of things that we can use to do that. But we don't have a silver bullet. I mean, there's a lot of great compounds and there's like, there's two companies that I would, you know, go with their products on my cattle in, in a heartbeat that I always do. But there's nothing that replicates as much as what Menensin does. Um, you know, there's a few things like uh, sodium or using malic acid and fumarate that we find in a lot of plants. And that causes a similar shift in the microbial population because you're, chain, you're giving a certain percentage of the population an advantage that uses lactate and shifts the acetate to propionate ratio. But it's not the same impact. It's not as repeatable as menensin. And that's a lot of the problem using these direct fed microbials. Even the great ones, there's always some cattle that don't respond and sure. you don't know why. And that's where it's been fun now to be in the kind of the lead on the this development of what we call next generation sequencing that's gone on in the gut for the past 15 years now. 20 years now almost, God, makes me feel old now. <laughs> but we take a look at what's that microbial population and how does it shift when we do these treatments? What is driving these changes? And what organisms change? What are those metabolic end products? So this whole omics of metabolomics, metagenomics has really played a big role in understanding. So what we want to do now is figure out which of these microbes are related to what changes we see in the diet and what end products. So that's some of the work that we're doing here of looking at, like, for instance, uh, one of my colleagues, Dean Pringle, had some cattle we had selected for several generations where they were high marbling or moderate marbling cattle and high feed efficiency, low feed efficiency. So they had four groups of cattle and we could find microbes that were associated with marbling in these cows and other microbes that were associated with a high feed efficiency. So we could, you know, basically then start to try to tailor what we want to see in that microbial population. So the idea now is that we can find compounds or probiotics or postbiotics that will shift the population to look more like what we want it to be. But we're still in the stage of, you know, everybody's like, this is a good microbiome. Well, we don't know what's a good or bad microbiome at this point. We, we're starting to get an inkling. But the reality is if somebody tells you, my product gives you a good microbiome, eh, no, it doesn't. They're, what, they're, what does they're selling mean? you something. Yeah. Sure. Sure. What does that mean? Yeah. And, you know, I can't tell you what a good microbiome is, and I've been doing this as long as anybody, but sure. we'll get there. And sure. that's the exciting part at this point. Absolutely. Again, my uh, guest today is Dr. Todd Calloway from the University of Georgia, associate professor there working in the ruminant nutrition and microbiology space. When we talk a lot of the, obviously we talk a lot about, um, we talk about ruminant uh, nutrition and we're talking about 
feeding the rumen and we're talking the microbiological nutritional side, where do things related to um, like food safety types concerns come in on, on some of these things as far as um, our feeding strategies, what we're feeding, how we're feeding, when we're feeding, whatever the case may be, as far as making sure that we're doing whatever we can to make sure that the, the, we're addressing any potential concerns about the, you know, the safety of the products they're producing? Well, that is a really good question. Um, and there's a lot of research that's been going on. Um, a lot of it's been done by the USDA Ag Research Service and my former group in College Station, the group here in Athens, Clay Center, Nebraska, Jim, Jim Wells, um, and that whole group out there has done some great work on looking at different diets and those impact on the shedding of pathogens, pathogen survival. Uh, Elaine Berry did a lot of work looking at like surface contamination. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been a lot of really good stuff done. And you know, that is where you know, the government really having a government research program is great because there's not a competitive advantage to food safety. And that's something the cattle industry has done when they created the BISCO program, Beef Industry Food Safety Consortium years ago, that I think is just brilliant models where all the companies came together and said, you know, we're not going to have food safety as a competitive issue. Mm. They share information. And the cattle industry has done a really great, they've been really forward thinking with that. Mandy Carr Johnson has done such a magnificent job in keeping this idea going that we're all in this together because we're protecting our consumers from these bad acting organisms that quite frankly are often present on farms or from birds flying over bringing it to them that that's not a competitive thing that we work together and we share that information so it works really great to do that there's a product that i was part of the development is robin anderson came up with it, sodium chlorate. And it specifically targets bacteria like E. coli and salmonella because they have a specific enzyme that breaks down chlorate. Well, that enzyme is meant to break down nitrate. You take nitrate NO3 to nitrite NO2. Well, chlorate is ClO3. And when it's broken down the same way to ClO2, It's turning it into bleach inside that bacterial cell, and it kills that bacteria, but only those that have that enzyme. So we can add this to a microbial population, and it kills the the bad actors, the salmonellas, the E. coli's, and closely related organisms, but leaves the rest of that population alone. So that was, it's been a great idea, a great technique. We played with it off and on for years, and it's still kind of caught up somewhere in the FDA process. I'm not quite sure where it is at this point between, you know, that's where you start getting into patent time Mm -hmm. period versus your exclusive, exclusive period. But, you know, at some point, that's something we expect to be on the market. Sure. So... Maybe tie in tie in you know a lot of this to, together, um, kind of, kind of here on the the tail end of it. Um, when 
I, I was going to ask you kind of some variation of the question of kind of what's next. Uh, you've already talked about a lot of it. You know, we've got food safety issues. We've got, uh, you know, wanting to be more sustainable, whether that be better feed efficiency, reduction in methane, depending on, you know, which, which uh, study you like to read about how, how much the cattle are responsible for global warming or whatever. Right. And, and all these things. And you mentioned the, the idea of eubiotics. So, with all of that idea, all of that kind of in hand and thinking about what's next going down that, that road, what are our, then our, our biggest challenges of getting these ideas of these are compounds, these are um, practices, the w- whatever, that we think could be valuable in the diet to solve some of these what's next type issues. What are the challenges about actually getting them into the feed, getting them into the diet, getting them to the animal? What are the biggest things where it's like, well, this is a great idea, but we, you know, it'll never make it into the feed. And this is why. Well, I mean, honestly, the big hurdle to a lot of that, and it's a good reason to have the hurdle is FDA. I mean, they're, I mean, that's their job. And they're there to protect everybody. And, you know, as a result, they're very conservative in their approach to everything of just say no or let's slow walk something to make sure that it's safe. That's their job. And they're doing a great job at protecting us. I mean, can't complain. We can grumble because we'd like to get the stuff in faster. But the biggest technical challenge remains understanding what's actually going on in the gut with these microbes because seeing that kind of interaction between like you know what a compound does what the microbes do and the end product that's an expensive process and it's difficult to do it takes time and to be able to prove what it's doing to fda's satisfaction or cvm you know whoever's looking at it usda to be able to approve it is challenging i mean that's that is a a hurdle that's hard to beat but really the biggest challenge is the biology of it because these systems and especially when you're looking at the rumen there's so much redundancy and plasticity built into this rumen ecosystem that it can adapt to just about anything you throw at it. I mean, we can mm-hmm. feed cows rocket fuel, and eventually they're going to degrade the rocket fuel. And there's going to be somebody in there that grows really well on rocket fuel. Or some of the animals we looked at in Aberdeen Proving Grounds where they're eating TNT residue, and you know they've got these interesting bacteria. Sure. So the biology is really the biggest challenge there. It's, you know, it's working against us. And, you know, I can joke about the regulatory people, but I mean, they're, they're on our side. Sure. So they're not, they're not our antagonist. You know, it sounds like to, to me, it's, it's a bit of a advertisement for, uh, you know, the, the, newly introduced the the innovative feed act, which is supposed to, you know, maybe reduce some of those regulatory hurdles such that those things that aren't, aren't drugs in, I mean, everything's a drug in the sense, you know, if it changes the physiology and then they all get treated that way, but there are, there are some of these compounds that we could use in these cases that really shouldn't be classified in the same way, which would give us the ability to use them. But also I'm guessing would make it a lot more attractive for, for folks like yourself and and the companies that, that you would work with and collaborate with to say, Hey, no, we'll do some investment in this because 
there's a much higher likelihood that, you know, if we find something, we can market it versus, I mean, we could find something, but man, it's going to cost us so many millions of dollars and so many years to, to get it through the process. Is it really worth it? It should open up some of that, that interest in innovation too. It will. And I mean, there's always been a lot of interest. There's a lot of companies involved that do really good science and they've thrown money at it. But I think this will um, get, like you said, it will get more people interested and willing to take that risk. Um, Or do we want to test this out? And, you know, I'm kind of excited to see it come forward and I hope it, it does. Yeah. Because I know it's been introduced at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. For for those for those that are listening, that may not be aware. I, I didn't uh, I didn't categorize it very well. But the idea of the Innovated Feed Act is to reduce some of the regulatory hurdle on approval of products that are not drugs in the the sense that many of us think about them that are antibiotics and things like that, but are, you know, a great example is the kind of products we've discussed here today, Menensin maybe notwithstanding, but other products that would be going in and changing things happening inside the gut that might improve, uh, you know, a reduction in methane or, or might improve the ability for certain nutrients to be pulled out and therefore the animal to be healthier and more efficient at the same time. Um, those things, because they interact with the physiology of the animal by definition, have always been referred to as drugs and therefore have to go through the full drug, new animal drug application approval process, which is so burdensome that nobody wants to do it. There's the Innovative Feed Act is the intention there is to, for some of these, for some of these things that could potentially have a different type of a definition um, for them to, to have a, a easier approval process that would still meet all of the safety guidelines and making sure they're safe to use, um, but would allow them to come to market in a, in a more um, appropriate way for, I think is a good way to say it. Yeah, it is. And I mean, it's an exciting idea. It's the first time that we've really looked at streamlining this, evaluation system in years to my knowledge you know we've had the uh fisma food safety modernization act and the veterinary feed directive and it's time to have something else on that side to give us more tools or at least allow it to be easier for us to find which tools will work absolutely yeah that's there's gonna there's gonna be a, a need to uh to find a lot of those those situations i was trying to think of there's a particular word of of what we call some of those products. And I can't think of it off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, I think there's going to have to be some, we're going to have to have more tools in the toolbox to, to meet oh, yeah. everybody's uh, the, the, the desires of everybody in the, the, you know, the animal food or food animal production system and the consumers. So, yeah. And there's not a silver bullet is the problem. And I mean, I, we all wish there was because that would make life so much easier, but there's so many different ways to produce animals, different conditions on farms that you just can't have that one blanket approach or blanket answer. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, since I can't figure out what that word was called, I know there was a, I know they've, someone's coined a term and I can't remember what the term is for what they wanted to call some of these products and it's going to drive me nuts, but that's okay. It's time for our famous three. 
Avonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonic's focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. I very much appreciate our conversation. It's been great. We always like to finish up our, our conversations with a few questions, um, hopefully give the audience uh, some thought on um, how they can learn more about a particular topic and also kind of we bring folks on, we're bringing people on because they're experts in, in what they do and therefore have some unique uh, experiences with w- what success looks like in our industry. So the first question is in regards to kind of this overall topic, when we talk about feeding of, of the rumen, is there a particular resource um, and it could be a book and it can be something online or whatever that, Hey, you know, Anybody that's got interest in this, this would be a really good place to go and to start um, to, to really get the, the basics of understanding of, of what this is about and, and what the requirements are. Yeah, actually, there is. Um, and it's actually free, surprisingly. Free is good. And I, yeah, free is great. Um, I don't have the website in front of me for that, but it's a book by Jim Russell and it's available on the USDA Ag Research Services website that you can kind of hunt for. Or I've got it. I have my students buy or get the book, but you can just, um, as long as you enter, you know, who you are, that you will get to download this book for free. And it's called um, Room and Microbiology. Just okay. want of anything simpler, but mm-hmm. my advisor Jim Russell, before he died, had written this book, and that was going to be his retirement fund. He felt like, and then he went ahead and died. But um, his family was kind enough to allow the USDA to make that freely available to the okay. public, and so you can look at it. But it's a great book that talks about the rumen, rumen microbes, some how we measure things, how what's important, what's not. A lot of the biochemistry, and that ecological thought. It's a really great first step into that world. Excellent, awesome. That's great. I've uh, written that one down for myself here. Um, how about uh, another resource that might be not necessarily specifically related to something like like rumen microbiology, but you know, obviously, you've spent time um, in the government system and the academic system, and you've got students, and you teach classes and do research. Um, a, a resource from a professional development uh, type of standpoint that perhaps you've had re- uh, particularly valuable. Um, that's uh, you know helped you try to figure out, you know, ways to, to be successful in all those different areas that, that you've had the, the privilege of being uh, able to experience? That one honestly comes down to networking with people and things like, you know, going to AFIA meetings because, you know, they've always been really good at setting up this networking and just talking to random people. And, you know, my whole career is basically falling into random brilliant people like you know one of my great friends is uh ken grizzold is one of the smartest people i've ever known and he's just described it as i just fall into luck (laughs) in his description of me and um and to a degree he's right because i've managed to ask the right person the right question a lot and it's 
I just can't underestimate that enough with students or underemphasize that or overemphasize that too much because that ability to talk to people and learn from them and see what they're doing and how they think is really critical. And if you get opportunities to, you know, go for a day or a week or something at FDA or CVM and see how they think and how they approach questions is really invaluable. And most of these people, you know, we've heard a lot in recent years about deep state and all that, but the government folks like that are dedicated public servants. You know, I, I worked for the federal government for almost 20 years. They're dedicated, really highly dedicated people to serving the country, and they love to help where they can. So, you know, talking to them and building those relationships is probably the greatest resource you know it's a cliche to say that people are the greatest resource but they really are and i mean it's a cliche but it's a cliche for a reason absolutely yeah you're you're the you're the second person here in just the last few podcasts at least the second that's that's said exactly that in this kind of idea that especially in our world the feeding world the nutrition world whatever the the idea of you're going to go find it all on google or in a book is nah there's there's there are so many different, you know, if this, then that type situations that we run into that your best bet is to build out that network and go, you know, I've never seen this before, but I know someone that if anyone would have seen it before, this is the person that would have let me call them. And you're never going to find that in a book. Yeah. And, you know, there's a guy down the road here. He's like 85 years old and used to run a feed mill. And he's just got these random tidbits of things of, yeah, turn your temperature up this temp- this much, do this. That's yeah. nowhere written, but it's just his institutional knowledge. And it's fantastic to have. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely agree. And that leads us into our, our last one here, which is in your experience dealing with all the different folks that you've dealt with and, and getting to meet all of these different people, if you had to pick a a, a professional skill or a character trait that you'd say, hey, everybody that I run into that I would describe as, you know, very successful in their chosen part of this field, they all do this or have this. Is there is there kind of one thing that comes to mind uh, that kind of rises to the top for you? Curiosity. I love that. They're always digging into things and they may not be the one asking the question. If you're in a meeting and there's, you know, there's always that guy that's asking a question just to show how smart they are. That's not necessarily your curiosity. It's the guy in the corner that's drawing, trying to figure something out and that will come ask them later of, you know, hey, how do we work this? That kind of genuine curiosity almost always leads to success. I mean, and it may not lead to the economic rewards for that person, but they're going to make a difference. Right. No, I, I, I love that answer. I have that conversation a lot um, with students, you know, going very all the way back to the, the first thing you said at the beginning, um, uh, you know, a lot of folks that end up coming into the ag area think, you know, veterinarian sounds good in that. Um and I don't even actually know if I ever shared on the podcast or not. I probably have. Um, my wife's a veterinarian. My mother was a veterinarian. Um, I, I, I've always really liked the field, um, but I've, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I wanted to be one specifically. But like you said, they all, a lot come in that way and then they go something and they think, well, maybe grad school. And when students ask me, well, what are some of the things that I should be thinking about if I'm going to grad school? That's, I mean, that is right at the top. How curious are you? 
Like if, if you're going to go down that path, I want to know that you're somebody that wants to go go dig and find an answer to something. And I think that's an underrated skill. I think it's a great answer. Yeah, couple that with resilience and somebody's going to be great. Yep, yep, I agree 100%. Well, Todd, I thank you very much for uh, for the time and for the conversation. I've, I've enjoyed it a lot. Once again, my guest today has been Dr. Todd Calloway, Associate Professor at the University of Georgia. Thank you for your time uh, and have a uh, Merry Christmas. Same to you. Thank you very much. Merry Christmas to everybody. For Wise Genetics, I'm Dr. Adam Farnells here at North Carolina State University in the feed milling program, wishing everybody, I don't know if this will come out uh, before, after, or right around, but happy holidays, happy new year, uh, and we'll see everybody in 2024. Please um, rate and review uh, podcasts or YouTube and uh, leave us comments. Let us know uh, what you like, and uh, we'll be looking forward to doing even more of these as we go forward. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wise Minutes, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.